Hello and welcome to 2100. Thank you, you curious soul you, for clicking on a podcast about East Germany. Takes a real smarty pants to want to learn about East Germany. And I'll tell you why we're talking about East Germany. Because this is the first episode in a three-part series called The Border Series. There are many border crises happening all over the world. Turkey wants more of Syria, Russia wants some of Ukraine, America does not want Mexico at all, do not ask them to have some Mexico, they do not want it, it's unsure what the British want, and Scotland might leave them because of it. So, I took the opportunity to uh, go and go to the border of Niagara Falls and talk to some politicians where in which I also bought this uh, record called Folk Songs and Drinking Songs from Germany, which you're hearing behind you. Uh, But I'm really proud of these three episodes and uh, what we were able to talk about. I decided to talk about uh, the borders of East Germany and uh, America and Canada rather than rambling about North Korea, Hong Kong, or America because those are already be well documented. So let's talk about some stuff no one else is talking about it. Uh, so thank you for listening, and here's the Border Series, baby. I'm in Germany. Is it a dream? There are many things I would like to do here. There are many people I can visit. There are some very great foods for me to eat. Oh, what can I do? There is so much. Maybe I should visit my opa. Maybe I should eat a döner kebab. Maybe I should play with some poodles. Maybe I should go to a bakery and eat some bread. No, I know what I need to do. I need to dance! Two, two, two thousand one hundred. If you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. I'm serious. Mr. Well, I can't tell you the time. Can't tell you the time. Nah, yeah, man. Yeah, I can't tell you about the future. The future. I'm serious. Two, two, two thousand one hundred. The Autonomous Republic of Crimea, Burma, Catalonia, Czechoslovakia, East Pakistan, Grand Colombia, the Kingdom of Hawaii, the Republic of Texas, New Granada, North Yemen, South Yemen, the Ottoman Empire, Persia, Prussia, the Republic of Zaire, Sikkim, Schleswig, South Vietnam, Tibet, the Soviet Union, the United Arab Republic, Yugoslavia, the Huron Confederacy, the Iroquois Confederacy, the Cherokee Nation, the Confederate States of America, 
and East Germany. Those are all names of former states, territories that used to govern themselves, failed states, and territories that were colonized. Some are the results of a split government, others deleted by manifest destiny. Some were indigenous people minding their business, and others were annexed overnight. The nature of the world's borders are strange. I have a jaded relationship with borders because I live in the United States. The U.S. has two border countries, Canada, who's extremely stable and an ally, and Mexico, who's allegedly an ally, but who we do not treat right because there's nothing more American than hating your brown neighbor for no reason. And I live in Pennsylvania, which means that I have almost no interaction with either border. But in other countries, borders really matter. And I'm sure they matter more to you if you're in America and you, say, live in Texas or, I guess, uh, Michigan? Yeah, we'll go Michigan. In 2020, the American government has begun building a wall across its southern border. The surface analysis of this wall would be to say, our stupid racist president, Donald Trump, wants to keep Mexicans out of America and save American jobs with a big dumb wall. But the reality is far more complex. America fueled crisis throughout Central America and South America throughout its absurd campaign of Cold War meddling across the world. Now, many of these countries are dangerous and people are fleeing north to America. Meanwhile, the danger is a direct result from America destabilizing the area, funding the drug trade, and supplying these countries and cartels with guns. So, we build a wall not just to keep the burden of our past mistakes out, but also because climate change is about to make resources scarce and America knows it, so we have to keep shit in. We need a wall to keep people out, and we need to keep people out so it's clear who lives and who dies. If you're inside the wall, you get to live, and if you're outside the wall, you have to die. It's basic logic. That's what walls usually imply. It goes, you don't get to come in. That's what borders are. It's deciding who gets what rights. It's deciding what people get to do what things, completely depending on where your physical human body falls out of a vagina and also where that vagina was born too. That matters. For example, if my mom was born in Spain and I was born in America, I could be a dual citizen, free to express myself and travel anywhere in the world. Hell, I'd probably speak two or three languages. But if my mother and I were born in North Korea in 1995 or East Germany in 1970, I could literally never leave. It's a pretty archaic system, but because we're humans, it's just kind of how we operate. And I've been fascinated with the ideas of failed states and former sovereign states for a while. One of my favorite basketball players growing up was Peja Stojakovic, a man from Yugoslavia, a no longer existing state by the time I was cognizant to care where my players were from. And I remember learning about it young, and my naive American brain was just so interested in the idea, like, what happens? We all swap flags when a country changes over? You just... You swap flags, and then what else happens? The the day after, or like two weeks after Yugoslavia, like what's that like? Do you get like new clothes and new sports? Do you get off from work and school? What happens to the lifestyles that existed in the former sovereign state where you still physically live? What happens to their culture? The truth is, most of it fades away or is intentionally destroyed by whoever takes over the failed state or 
destroys the culture of the past state, whether it's destroying and whitewashing the history of Native Americans or destroying the disgrace of the Confederacy. America has split up before, so it would be naive to think that it could never split again. You look to the past to look to the future, and if you look to the past, you realize many countries and states that exist in 2020 will not exist in 2100. I don't know about America, but places like Rojava and Hong Kong will likely cease to exist. Rojava right now is in the northern part of Syria, and this is a place where a few million people live, and they created an amazing community despite all the bullshit that they have to deal with. It's occupied by Kurds who the cowardly American government abandoned in 2019. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if by the time this podcast airs, Rojava is a completely dissolved into Syria or Turkey. Who knows? God knows what will happen in Syria by 2100. Places like Rojava and Hong Kong are important. They have cultures and stories and achievements within their borders. People live lives just as meaningful as yours within realities that no longer exist. These are interesting test cases for societies. The idea of evaluating borders stuck in my head for weeks and weeks. And then scrolling through Twitter, I found an article, article in Jacobin, Jacobin magazine, magazine that featured an interview, an interview with the last, last dictator, dictator of, of Eastern, Eastern Germany, Germany. Egon, Egon Krenz. Krenz. And I was pissed off reading it because I knew nothing about East Germany. And I felt stupid. I was floored learning about the nuances of the German split and reunification. Then upon further reading, I realized that I'm only five years older than the modern country of Germany. Germany as I know it has only existed for 30 years, and I know nothing about it. I was born in 1995. Germany reunified in 1990, and no one talks about it. So I reached out to the editor of Jacobin Magazine, Loren Bauhorn, who was there to interview former dictator of East Germany who is still alive, Egon Krenz, to talk about the nature of failed states, split states, and sovereign states through the lens of East Germany. And here that is. Kein Mädchen öffnet Türen dann und Fenster, durch die toten Städte geistern nur Gespenster. Ein Warum, ein Warum, ein Warum, ein Bloß, weil der Dollar Segen vom Regen bringt. Ja, bloß, weil der Dollar Segen vom Regen bringt. Um. I'm just an idiot, and I, I wound up in this situation where I brought every, all the biggest stuff for the longest distance of travel I've ever had to do uh, to record one of these. I was like, you know what, Why, let's bring the heavy stuff, yeah. especially because it's, it's 65 out too right. in January, shout out sure. global warming. Um, so, no, uh, I'm caught off guard completely. If you, I apologize to you for wearing sweatpants also. Um, <laughs> So I went to Stanford with no packing, um, and now I'm in New York with no packing. I did my, all my laundry and everything, but I was ill-prepared. Oh, um, don't worry about it, man. Um, so thank you for easy. coming. Um, if, if you could introduce yourself to uh, potential listeners, mm -hmm. um, just a brief introduction of who you are. Um, you don't have to say why you're here. I'll explain all that. Okay, okay. Yeah, uh, my name is Lauren Bellhorn. I am a editor at uh, a contributing editor at Jacobin Magazine, as well as the uh, German um, the German language spinoff of Jacobin Magazine, that's starting later this year. And uh, yeah, I'm 
originally from Wisconsin, but based in Berlin, Germany. Okay. Um, so I reached out to you because uh, I had read an interview um, that you and a couple other journalists had conducted with Egon Krenz. Is that, am I saying that correctly? Yeah, Egon, but... <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, and, and I'm happy, I was actually happy to discover that you were American, because um, now, now you have a little more context, because you can relate to why I want to do this episode. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. So, the premise of this episode is things lost to time. Um, what's funny off on this is there's a lot of, like, if you look at, like, uh, neo-colonialism or neo-imperialism and these ideas where... All of a sudden, um, just like places like Africa had these huge borders and, th and, and governments popped up out of nowhere and then they disappeared and the Soviet Union's now Russia and th there's a very fluid nature to like uh, the idea of the state. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not just um, for the state, it's also for like any bureaucracy. Like, like uh, um, uh, we're in New York City right now. Um, like all these companies, they shut down, and then all those guys get hired at new firms. They don't, and they stay in the system. So like, it's just a, a transfer. Nothing really ended. Mm -hmm. It just mm -hmm. got kind of transferred. Um, so like I said, I'm gonna probably have you on this episode and my father, because my father worked at Lehman Brothers. Ah, okay. So uh, that's another thing that's kind of lost to time, and no one really talks about Lehman Brothers anymore. Yeah. And yeah. I wanted to reach out to you because Egon Krenz was the last um, leader of the communist government in the GDR, otherwise known as Eastern Germany, and you talked to him. And I'd never heard of Egon Krenz. I know nothing about East Germany. Not nothing. I know I know more than the average American, but nothing. Mm -hmm. Like nothing. I'm, I'm a dunce. Um, and I, I was reading the, the interview, and I was like, I know none of this. I didn't <laughs> learn a single lick of any of this. I have no context. I don't know what they're talking about. I feel I felt stupid reading it. <laughs> and then, so what I did was I tried to embark on uh, learning about East Germany, and I, I like couldn't. It was either you, you. There's the two things, and you guys touched on it in the beginning of the article. It's either considered like this failed communist state that brutalized people, or it is considered like this this uh, really nice thing that just didn't work out. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't. I don't know. I, and I wanted you to just talk to East, talk about East Germany and. Talk about like what really happened there, mm -hmm. or, or at least what you portray as what, what happened there, because you're, uh, in my opinion, an expert. Um, and I, you don't learn about it in school. You, when you learn about Germany in school, you just learn that it is one of the big, like big prominent countries. You learn about um, the Nazi part, the Berlin Wall falls, and now we love Germany again. Yeah, yeah. When it, in reality, it's only Germany's only been around since like Germany as we know it. Is, has only been around since like 1989. Right. Yeah. But it's not it's, it's not treated like that. It's treated as a monolith, like 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 it's been this yeah. permanent thing. So I just wanted to talk to you about that. Could you, to the average American who's completely unfamiliar with East Germany, uh, who only learned what you learn in grade school, high school, could you just uh, speak about uh, just talk about a brief history of East Germany after, uh -huh. after or yeah, just go ahead. <laughs> well, I mean. In line with the theme of this show, I think Germany, um, even beyond East Germany, uh, the amount of transformation of the German state in the last 150 years says a lot about um, sort of the transitory nature or fluid nature of, of, of political systems, of political orders. Because if you, so the United States, 
I mean, I guess the, you could say the last time that the United States really had some kind of transformational moment would be the end of the Civil War, I guess, mm-hmm. right? In 1865, that's like the last time that in the United States, even if the size or the borders of the country didn't change, it was a fundamental transformation of the society mm-hmm. and the state structure. Germany as a country doesn't exist until 1871, right? So mm-hmm. um, Germany as like a cultural space is older. But Germany begins in 1871 with unification under Bismarck. Um, its borders uh, at the time extend all the way to what would now be Eastern Poland. Um, and within, I mean, within 80, 70, 80 years, yeah. you know, it goes from uh, an imperial monarchy to uh, a very interesting parliamentary democracy for about 15 years, really the first society in which, at least the first Western society in which things like homosexuality were widely discussed and openly Mm -hmm. practiced in urban areas, an extremely liberal society. Um, Like the amount of cocaine usage in the 1920s in Berlin is... uh, uh, rivals, probably London banking yeah. use today. I always say that uh, conspiracy theories always have a kernel of truth, and, <laughs> and the, the, there's always the uh, uh, the Nazis were all meth heads conspiracy. Yeah, well, there's part of that. Yeah, yeah, I, and I, I don't take it at full value because there's whole books. There's there is a book that exists that completely mm-hmm. uh, blames drugs for yeah, for, yeah, for yeah. The, and I was like, all right, that's too far. Let's, yeah, let's <laughs> but, but yeah, there was no. a lot of. I mean, I mean, it's probably the same for the United States. There was a lot of illicit drug use uh, in the early 20th century before kind of public health agencies mm-hmm. changed their mind or whatever. Um, <laughs> but yeah, then you have then you have the Nazi period uh, in which Germany, in a period of you know seven years, uh, unifies or annexes Austria, mm-hmm. uh, annexes the Sudetenland, then annexes the rest of Czechoslovakia, and you know. For a brief period before you know the war ends, Germany is covering almost half of Europe. You know, and then you have the defeat, and in 1949 you have the founding of the two German states, which both well, which that division lasts for 40 years. So really, in a period of only 100 years or 100 and uh, you know 15 years, something like that, Germany has changed social orders three or four times, the size of the country where its borders lie has varied significantly. And it's not significantly. portrayed as such. Right, like, it, right. G- Germany is um, portrayed as consistent almost. Like it, in America, it's you learn like, and, and, and it's, it's weird to say this because there's almost no fact behind this. Yeah. But like culturally, you learn about like France, UK, Germany, like Russia, uh, Egypt. These mm-hmm. are, for some reason, Egypt is mm-hmm. thrown mm-hmm. in there. Mm-hmm. Like when you're taught in like grade school about the countries, Germany is held up as almost like a consistent figure. And I and and, and only until recently did I discover any of what you said. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, but that's. I mean, that's that's just. I think it's the combination of the American education system, which is let's be honest, I mean, not very I good. Say, I could say bad. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I went to you know, I went I went to school in Wisconsin, uh, and then I spent a year living in Europe. And the difference between what we were expected to do at school in Germany, what mm-hmm. students knew in Germany, uh, same at university, is quite yeah impressive. I, I hated college. I went to Temple University. Um, I went to two colleges. I went to East Stroudsburg University in the Poconos because I was too stupid to get into any colleges. Uh, Temple rejected me. Uh, I spent two years there, and then I did great. I was a TA as a freshman. Okay. I was so happy. I was I was doing good, and then and I learned a lot, and I loved my education. And then I transferred to Temple, which is a bigger school, like way more like commercial. And 
it was so easy. Mm-hmm. Like I couldn't believe the drop off in like a bigger, more commercial school than mm-hmm, the state mm-hmm, school. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you follow that model, it's it's not very good. And I think it's also compounded by just the geographical isolation of this country. Mm-hmm. That people, you know, most people don't ever leave the country. Something like eighty yes. percent of Americans don't have a passport. A lot of my friends. Uh, and you know, part of that is just due to financial situations and the fact that Americans, or most Americans, actually struggle very much to make ends meet. Yeah, but also, nowadays. yeah, yeah. But it's also just it's really far away. You know, I mean, uh, I so I live in Germany. I've lived in Germany for twelve years, uh, and I often, you know, coming from a fairly small town in the Midwest, when I go home to visit my parents, um, you, I get the impression oftentimes that when I talk to people in bars, things like that, mm. what do you live, what do you do? Or even last night I was at a bar in Brooklyn and an older woman asked me, you know, what is a guy from Wisconsin doing here? And I said, well, I actually live in Germany. I'm just visiting friends. Uh, you know, she was, she was funny and laughed about it, but I could tell that she didn't really know where Germany was. Or, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and people are often <laughs> dismissive like, uh, to... to um international like like people don't like when you tell people like I'm going because I, mm-hmm. I did, a, I did mm-hmm. a study abroad you almost get written off as pompous for wanting to mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. oh Mr. Traveler yeah, yeah. Mr. Tough not even tough like the opposite like, yeah exactly like, it's the opposite yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm a pussy because <laughs> exactly. I care about Europe yeah or I'm interested in Europe like locations make me lame I don't understand yeah yeah no it's there's it's it's something there's a mild stigma against um, internationalism there's definitely yeah. internationalism the the America has the weirdest nationalism. Oh, yes. It definitely yes. has the weirdest cultural culture of nationalism. Um, it, it has this weird, like, we can say and do anything we want, but, and we can hate ourselves, but still, when it comes down to it, we're, like, just the biggest homers. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you saw it with the Iran conflict a couple weeks ago. All of a sudden, everyone's got an opinion on Iran. Yeah. People on Facebook who, who I know don't know, like anything about Iran had opinions and me too I didn't have I didn't know I knew minor things like the Iran nuclear deal but other people are just like let's go to war with Iran and I'm like yeah yeah what do you know what did they do to you yeah like how do you it's the strangest thing I'm getting off topic well I think part of it is uh you're right we are but uh, it is an interesting point I think it's the the settler colonial nature of the country and I think you wrote this when you asked me to be on the show uh, it's a young state, and it's a state that tells itself that it's the greatest place in the world. Which is not healthy. Yeah, and that's what you grow up thinking. Um, like, I can remember one of the last co- phone conversations I had with my grandmother before she passed away a few years ago. She said to me that she really hopes that I move back to the United States while she's still alive, because she worries so much what would happen to me if I got sick and had to go to a doctor in Germany. <laughs> would I be able to get proper medical care? And I... You know, I'm not going to begin a conversation with a 99 year old yeah, woman you're not about. Scream at your grandmother <laughs> but, about healthcare. But you just, I just thought, how could you not know that 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 Western European healthcare systems are much more efficient and like much better than ours? Because <laughs> <laughs> people don't care. It's easier to it not. It's not. It is a easier and b kinder. Yeah. to think that you live in the best right. place in the world. No one wants to be told that they don't live in the best place in the world. And Th- that bar was set so high for us as mm-hmm. like children, like you live in the best place, yeah, and yeah, you, and you love it, yeah, and then you grow up and you're like, this is the best place, yeah. and then you watch the news and you get scared of everywhere else, and then you're like, oh yeah, everywhere else is safe, is scary, even play, but the the same people that say that they love America would not go into the inner city, would not go, would, they would hate most of America. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, it, it's mm-hmm. it's crazy to me. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a bizarre. I mean, I love coming home, but it's it is it's just a bizarre society. Is, is li- <laughs> does living in Germany give you a, a different? Um, do does it feel different to be in America nowadays? Like oh, when- certainly. I mean, uh, just the the patriotism thing. Um, it's so bad. Well, and it's if you were to translate it into German or really most European countries, at least Western Europe. Um, the level of normalized hyper-nationalism in this country would be considered extremely right-wing in most well, of Europe. Well, America is a, <laughs> a, a, a right-of-center country. Yeah, 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 yeah sure. Aren't, but it's so weird because I find um, patri- American patriotism to be extremely disingenuous. Mm. Um, like, it, yeah, like, uh, you hoot and you holler. But what is it that you do? Yeah, like you, you, like these are people that are just kind of screaming into the ether of the internet, waving, exactly. waving flags, and then sitting their ass down and watching the Masked Singer or This Is Us. <laughs> They're watching like the most boring shows on television, just quietly minding their business. They're not. They're not in the streets. They're like, and the ones that are in the streets are all like. You know what? I'm not going to generalize. Uh, but regardless, um, we should probably talk about East Germany. We're going back to East Germany. So you said you you know you know a lot about Berlin, and Berlin sure. is the one thing that I think Americans can understand mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. East Germany, especially the Berlin Wall. And just recently, I learned that the Berlin Wall was a circle. It was not right. a, a wall. Yeah, they did not, and I think this is important. Uh, they did not build a wall um, across a city, like just one line. Right. They literally like fenced in an right. entire uh, part of the city. And I wanted to ask you this about the Berlin Wall. Um, you hear a lot of talk. There's a JFK quote that sticks out. that He, he says, uh, better a wall than a war. Right. In a few, in a few more words. Right. Why? Like, what is that about? How did a, the Berlin Wall prevent war? How well, is that the context? I mean, I think to... To understand the Berlin Wall, uh, and it's a, I think it's actually it's a very nuanced uh, question. Obviously, on a basic uh, ethical sort of principled yeah, and level. Could you, and, and sorry, uh, we I know a little bit about the Berlin Wall, but could you uh, talk about um, the origins or the reasons right. of the Berlin Wall? Right. Sure. A little yeah. Bit for the listeners. Yeah. I mean, so I like like so on a very like abstract principled level. Obviously, walls are not good. And walling people in or out uh, is morally morally questionable, uh, at best. <laughs> I was gonna go with inhumane. Right, right. But I think, t- but that's almost that's also a too easy way of seeing the question, right? I mean, I think there is no Berlin Wall, there is no East Germany. None of this happens without Hitler and the Nazis, mm-hmm. um, and obviously. You know, Hitler was elected, but Hitler never actually won an election. It was through, well, in terms of, like, what is the political moral responsibility, there were a lot of actors who cooperated with Hitler and tolerated Hitler because the idea, the rationale was Hitler is still better than the socialists and the communists. Um, And so I think... To understand it historically, you have to, well, yeah, I mean, Hitler was made chancellor through a pact with the conservatives who just wanted to make sure that the Social Democrats didn't take power and the communists. So you have to sort of look back onto the, the 30 years of German history prior to it to understand what leads up to the Berlin Wall and what leads to the founding of East Germany. So 
if you you know if you bother or if you're lucky enough to learn about the Cold War in American uh, education, you'll probably be told that. Um, oh my God! Yeah, I was going to touch on this with you. That most Americans, what they know about the Cold War is essentially uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis and uh, astronauts. Right. Right. There's the two things you learn: space but race, the, Cuban uh, Missile Crisis. I mean, the Cuban Missile Crisis is a great example in that the version that we're told is like all oh, the aggressive Russians were trying to put nuclear missiles below Florida, but no one mentions that the United States already had nuclear missiles all over Europe and like Turkey that could have hit Moscow. Anywhere, you know. Yeah. So really, what they were trying to do was balance the playing field. But uh, in a You're country like... You're not allowed to talk about that. You're not allowed. You, you, <laughs> yeah. shut, you shut your mouth. We're not allowed right. to talk about that. Exactly. You're not allowed to talk about that. This is and America. It, in many ways, that's the history of East <laughs> Germany. I mean... Uh, so I obviously I had this long conversation with Egon Krenz, and Egon Krenz, I mean, you can tell when you speak to the man that he is a trained. He's very good at relativizing his own crimes or his own guilt, yeah, and he no, has talk a very. Talk to me about meeting Egon Krenz, and this is why I think it's fascinating that uh, if you met a man who, uh, once again, you look up Egon Krenz. What is he? Is he a a a just a, a little bit too? Uh, Fringe is he? He seems relatively moderate in some in some sense, but I couldn't get like a, any like real information about Egon yeah. Krenz. No one cares about him. Well, and it's and hard. I don't know why this man was the last leader of a failed state. But I mean, I think that's exactly why. Um, that, no, if anything, that should be important. He was the last one. That well, but it. he's not. I mean, he's an unrepentant communist, right? And if you look at like some of his colleagues, like Gunter Schabowski, who was the bureaucrat who famously on November 9th gave the press conference where he said the Berlin Wall is open immediately, which depending on who you ask, it was either a mistake or is a misunderstanding. But he very quickly uh, became a conservative and denounced his entire career and everyone he worked with. And he was a darling of German media until he died because that's the kind of personality they want to put on TV. Mm -hmm. is someone who confirms the uh, you know the narrative that it was a terrible country and it's a terrible system and he regrets everything he did. Somebody who refuses to go along with that, they're not uh, they're not really as attractive for mainstream media. But I think Krenz is also I mean Krenz is a product of this post-war um, constellation uh, that you know you had. Um, yeah, you had a you had a global systems rivalry between Moscow and, this and the like United States. Well, I'm, I'm talking about his childhood, right? So okay. he's born during world. He's born a few years before World War II, and he grows up uh, in the East uh, and believes very much in the dream of a better Germany and a, mm -hmm. a socialist Germany, and was very much influenced by the fact that the Russians had ended the war. Mm -hmm. That it was not. You know, obviously the Americans and the Brits also played important roles, but World War II was won by the Soviet Union, and that was a commonly accepted fact for decades after the war. And it's only in recent decades, especially after the fall of the Soviet Union, that that has been forgotten. But he was very much shaped by the fact that the Russians beat the Nazis, the Russians freed my country, and... Uh, you know, obviously there were lots of horrible things that happened during the Russian occupation. I don't want to deny any of that. Mm -hmm. But that for him was a very formative experience. And that yes. was a formative experience for millions of East Germans. Mm -hmm. So, of course... And didn't he, I believe he lost his father in World War II as well. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, 
I'm not sure if it was his father or his stepfather, Both. but yes. Lost right. his, he lost uh, his, I, I believe in the article it says his mother lost her first husband in exactly. World War I and yes. his second husband exactly. Egon's right. father in World War II. Right, so this is, you know, it's, it's impossible or it's very difficult to imagine what this must have been like, but the complete and utter annihilation, not annihilation, but decimation of your own country and also the entire continent yeah, because, he, because of your government. Up, he's growing up in a Germany that was essentially decimated right. after World exactly. War II. Exactly. And it was decimated because of their own government. Like they did it right. themselves, quote unquote. And I think this experience has to be seen as ambivalent. So for every, you know, it's true that millions of people fled East Germany and many, many people had bad experiences. I wouldn't deny any of that. And I also wouldn't try to convince anyone that it was a democratic state. It was not. It was a dictatorship. That's clear. But for every person who fled the communist government, for every person who went to West Germany and thought it was much better, there was someone else uh, who had a good experience with the Russians, who believed in the dream. Yeah. Uh, and especially like in the anything. first... Nothing is a monolith. And I feel like with history, and that's kind of like the point of this podcast, um, is that you, it, it's never just cut and dry. Right. It is almost... I think Hitler is one of the only uh, yeah, experiences yeah. <laughs> throughout history where you can go, bad guy. Cut and dry. Yeah. 100% that it was his fault. And Very yes. much. Yeah, but yeah, then yeah. you get into these other things where you're, you're debating, like, when it comes down to, like, Cold War, what I call Cold War bullshit, when it's just people meddling over which economic system to use, and then yeah. it results in the deaths of millions of people, uh, I think that's... Um, a different story, right? It's like it's ne the East-West split, and and yes, bad things happened. Bad things are always happening. Right. Welcome to Earth. Bad things are happening, and very bad things happened on and both are, sides. And can I, may I ask what are some of the bad things that happened in East Germany? Because I don't, I don't think so. East Germany post World War II, like after the split, like we're in like the sixties and the seventies. Like what was going on that was not ideal? Well, I mean, obviously there was limited freedom of expression, um, especially, especially in the first, the first years before Stalin's death. Uh, you know, it was a classical Stalinist state. Uh, mm -hmm. You couldn't, couldn't freely state your opinion for the most part. Uh, <laughs> yeah. For the most part. Um, uh, there were certainly a lot of political prisoners. Uh, mm -hmm. There weren't very many executions, but yes, it was... So just uh, like standard, like, Turkey right now? <laughs> Maybe a little bit worse than Turkey. I mean, you did have you did have the Soviet <laughs> no, no, I'm secret just police. No, I'm trying to get a scale yeah. uh, because I don't know. Like I'm trying to compare it to something because I, yeah, sure I, that what you just described sounds kind of like Erdogan-y. I mean, it was uh, well, with a mix of Stalin. I mean, yes. I mean, it, it, the the very first years of East Germany were relatively open, um, and with. So, for example, in 1946, uh, there, are so, there are free elections where, also because large parts of East Germany were historically strongholds of the communists, even before, before the Nazis. Mm -hmm. So uh, there was very much a sense that this is our heartland. And after the first free elections, the communists did much worse than expected. Um, and the Soviets begin to sort of tighten the screws a bit and mm -hmm. uh, gradually... Uh, transition to a more Soviet-style mm -hmm. uh, system with uh, no free elections. There were still always more than one political party, but they were more or less controlled by the communists. Um, 
many, especially people, I mean, what I think one of the most important things that is completely omitted when you talk about this usually in the West is, of course, especially many wealthy and upper middle class people were socially ostracized, maybe lost their jobs, lost a lot of property. That's frankly, a situation where I don't have that much sympathy, the, especially most of Prussia had been dominated by the wealthy landlords, the Junkers, who owned massive tracts of land, mm -hmm. and one of the first acts by the government was to take all that land from the rich and distribute it to the farmers, yep. which uh, sounds fine to me, I'm, you know? Yeah, uh, I wish I wish <laughs> we could nuke every golf course in America and, and change it into literally anything. I would just love for the golf courses to become radioactive Okay, such yeah. a waste of land. <laughs> oh, completely, completely. <laughs> um, but so in the first 15 years, of the state, you had a massive program of affirmative action for working class people. Mm -hmm. So from until about the mid-1960s, there is a huge wave of upward social mobility from people from poor and working class backgrounds, uh, which then ironically, and that's exactly who someone like Egon Krenz is. Mm -hmm. He came from a relatively poor family, uh, becomes a convinced communist, and gets on sort of like the, the express lane to the top part because of his working class background. And at the same time, lots of rich people and middle class people are leaving to the West because they are being ostracized in this situation. Um, and that, so then to get to the question That of, makes sense. That, yeah, that is completely omitted. Like when you hear about uh, the exodus of people from East Germany, you assume um, that it's like you know, the people are starving and there's torture and everyone's getting raped every day. But rather... Yeah, it makes sense. If, if you had a big house and the government was like, we want your big house, you'd be like, I hate this government. Right. I'm going to go to the other government that, that like, it's the, the same country. I'll just go over there. Yeah. I actually, a few years ago when my dad uh, was visiting me, we visited uh, the village uh, in East Germany that our, you know, great, 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 great mm -hmm. grandfather, whatever, came from. And it was one old kind of half-collapsed, overgrown mansion and we were looking at it, and some old man came up, and I asked him, "Was you know, was this like the Junkers' house before mm -hmm. the war?" And he was like, "Yeah, that was that was a, that was a landlord's house, and he left in the fifties, and uh, <laughs> you know, it's just been empty ever since." And that was wow. that was a ma major experience. So, when the Berlin Wall is built, I mean, there are two reasons for the Berlin Wall being built. Uh, I mean, it was it is true that the West was sending a lot of spies uh, and I think through this is also West Berlin. That people don't know, like listeners at home may not know. Um, just because uh, the people don't know a lot about Germany, but after World War II, Germany was split into four. Yes, correct. And it was right. uh, the Soviets got a slice, America got a slice, UK and France. Right. And then UK, France, and America all teamed up to create West Germany, and uh, right. the Soviet Union created uh, East Germany. Um, but this is something I don't think the people will know. Berlin, the 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 capital of both of them was in East Germany right. and right. was also segmented four ways. Exactly. And, right. and the, the, once again, three-fourths teamed up, and then the Soviet Union had East Berlin. Is that yes. what it's called? East Berlin. Right. And then eventually they uh, created the Berlin Wall around right. West Berlin. Exactly. And now we're caught up. <laughs> right. So, And it's important to remember that both the founding of West Germany, the founding of NATO always preceded the founding of the Soviet-controlled uh, counterparts. So mm -hmm. East Germany being founded is a response to West Germany being founded, or rather a response to uh, the Western powers introducing a new currency uh, within the three allied zones of occupation. Mm -hmm. So 
the story is always it was the Russians that were being aggressive and the Russians that wanted to expand. Russia had just lost 20 million people and like half of its industrial capacity. It was in no position so to invade like the West. It sounds like they were being aggressive. Yeah. It sounds right. like they were in attack mode. Well, and now that the archives have been, at least some KGB and some Soviet archives have, have now been opened, um, there's a lot of evidence uh, to indicate that the Russians, the Soviets, had no intention of expanding into the West and very much wanted a demilitarized, peaceful Germany, and the West had no interest in that. So when the Berlin Wall is built, um, you know, it, it was official title, which is, of course, quite silly and sounds absurd 60 years later, was the Anti-Fascist Protection Wall. Um, <laughs> and that is, of course, a, perhaps a bit verbose, a bit... Uh, a bit embellished, right? Just but called it the friendship wall. <laughs> well, the, the way so that they, I mean, the, sort of the ideological argument at the time, which was in many ways true, is so there were many, many former Nazis continued to work in the West German government, and, and this was also what I wanted. That's a big so this part is of it. this is sort of the East German story, like like their the way that they narrated the whole situation was West Germany is controlled by ex Nazis, um, and they're using West Berlin to send lots of spies and saboteurs into our country. There was certainly an element of truth to that, mm -hmm. but the real the the real underlying reason to build the wall was because so many middle class professionals were leaving to the West. And Germ East Germany was constantly losing doctors, engineers, yeah, the, the kinds of technical intelligentsia that you need to build you know, a complex capitalist economy. Yeah. And so, yes, it was ultimately an authoritarian measure to say, no, you can't leave. We need you. Um, mm -hmm. Certainly uh, not a very nice or democratic thing to do. But I think it needs to be seen in the context at the time, uh, which doesn't excuse uh, the building of the wall, but I think at least makes it much more, it's easier to understand what the rationale of the actors was at the time. And you know, you asked at the beginning of our conversation, why did Kennedy say rather a wall than a war? I mean, for precisely that reason, that um, he thought that it would stabilize, everyone knew that it would stabilize East Germany, um, and that seemed to be in the interests of avoiding a war on the European continent. How do, I don't understand how a wall around East Berlin stabilizes East Germany. Well, because East Berlin... Just because it, it forces the middle class to stay? Yeah, well, Berlin was the only place that you could leave the country. Yes. You know, there was a wall, not a wall, but there was a very complicated border system dividing the entire country, and Berlin was sort of like this this little, uh, you know, what's the word, the loophole, where you could just stroll across the border, yeah, no the, problem. it's the one little slip. You can right. use it to get, to get exactly. out. Exactly. It's, it's like, oh, I think Morocco has that. Mm -hmm. Like there's a place in Morocco where well, Spanish go, Morocco, yes. yeah. Yeah, if you yeah, go yeah. there, you, if there's like a there's a big wall and it's it's terrible and it makes me wish I was dead when I watch the video. Yeah, there's a video explaining like how hordes of people flooded at once and they all get tear gassed and like one guy gets over. Yeah, but then, then you're on European territory. And he cheers yeah. because he's a, he's a, he's officially a European refugee. Exactly, um, exactly. Uh, it's kind of like that. Yes, and in, in fact, very similar in that if you look at the. The discourse in West Germany at the time, the way that the Easterners were talked about, they were dirty, they were, uh, they were bringing diseases. There was, for all, for all of the sort of German patriotism and pro-democracy and reunification, there was extremely xenophobic undercurrent, suspicious of the Easterners. I do not like the parallels of everything <laughs> you're saying that resembles current America. You've said like six things that have been like, oh, that sounds like America right now. Well, we're in many ways and still in the same historical yeah, moment. Yeah, because we're smartphones right now. now. There's a new wall, and right. there's new people that are too dirty to come into a country. And, and just like 
the same thing that was happening in East Berlin back then is currently happening in Morocco. It's yeah. all the same shit repeated time and time again. And that's why the podcast exists. To go, hey, we've been doing this shit for decades. Let's figure it out. Because <laughs> it, 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 it's over and over and over again. And that, that it kind of has to be, right? Mm -hmm. But so, so what I think is different now is... Um, and why I, as I grow older, I wouldn't say I have sympathy for the Eastern Bloc or for East Germany, but where I understand more why people believed in this at the time and in some ways wish it was still around is that, and this is something Egon Krenz in his most recent book writes about a lot, um, the existence of the Soviet Union for all of its faults, for all of its democratic deficits, low standards of living, etc., and the Eastern Bloc and the world of socialist states posed a concrete alternative to the capitalist West. And there was a feeling and a sense that there were alternate directions that history could go in. Mm -hmm. Now, that's gone. There's, you know, we, we have, thank God, we have Bernie Sanders and we do have <laughs> a revival of some socialist ideas maybe, but there's really no sense that another world or another system could be possible. And instead, we have, you know, we have in many ways, despite all the talk about, I was watching Fox News yesterday, you know, we got the hottest economy in American history. Oh, we're all doing very but, well. But it's for the rich, right? And no, instead we have, we have, uh, we have very, you know, we have a really crappy situation in most of the Western capitalist countries. It's very exciting that the stock market's rising, but meanwhile, the gig right. economy has turned everyone's house into a hotel and everyone's car into a taxi. Right, and it makes people ugly and vicious. And so things like like building the wall with Mexico or whether or in Europe, I mean, everyone talks about how the EU is so great because you can go from France to Germany and there's no border. Yeah. But try to get from Morocco to Germany, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's... It's a, it's a situation of diminishing returns where the xenophobia and the walls are about people who don't have very much worried about losing what little they have to people who have even less. That's the big thing. And I it's think complacency. That's, uh, people are scared to lose the little they have. Yes, but that's understandable. Yes. Uh, and when there's no other alternative on offer that seems plausible... I can kind of understand why people go that way. You know, like, I don't believe any of the crap that Donald Trump says about how he's going to create jobs and whatever, but I can understand why people who are desperate might be willing to fall for that. And that's the big beef that everyone has with socialism, especially in America, because, like you said, things are not good right now for the average American. It's tough to, to, to sustain uh, property is rising, everyone's in loads of student debt, everyone's got a cousin who died of a heroin overdose or is mentally ill in X, Y, and Z. Uh, that's the American life we live now. But um, when someone like Bernie Sanders comes along and says, hey, um, I'm going to tax you at uh, like 45, 50%, um, someone who just went through all that stuff I said is going to go, how could you take what little I have? Uh, not understanding that it will allow uh, the person with uh, drug uh, addiction to go to rehab for free, and that you can go to therapy now. Yeah. And now, like, like everything is like, there's certain things like, like it will help you. You just have to read about it and understand it. Sure. Which is not the American way. And especially since the 1980s, and that's another thing where I think the loss of the socialist countries or the state socialist countries I has had. I would have lost my mind if I was born any earlier than I was. 
one. I'm already losing my mind. I couldn't imagine living through Reagan. I, I, don't, I don't think I don't think I would, I'm built for that. Well, but I think the combination of Reagan and then the collapse of the Soviet Union really strengthened the kind of ideologues that say that the state can't do anything good. That you know the market is more productive, the market is more efficient, and that was an idea that was not widespread in the United States in the Cold War period. Mm-hmm. Even you know even. People like Richard Nixon were building new government agencies and expanding yeah, the welfare state. Yeah, he was pretty state. good for the EPA. Yes, I think he established yeah, the yeah. EPA and, and there were, parks and stuff. Yes, and there was, you know, I don't think it's true that because the Soviet Union existed, the West felt like they had to provide more benefits. I think that's too simplistic of a way to look at it, but I do think that was an element of it. And that when you had this other world that existed mm-hmm. in which the government provided free housing, free health care, there, there was a feeling among the elites that you had to make sure that those ideas did not become appealing under, among your own working class. Mm-hmm. And there was a f- generalized feeling that the state, there's a role for the state in public life and in providing services that now, whether it's, you know, honestly, whether it's any other Democrat other than Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or every Republican, that idea is, uh, is very discredited. The idea is that, oh, no, we should let the market do as much as we can, private sector is much more efficient, despite the fact that every single academic study would disagree yeah, with trust, that. Trust the market that right. gave us uh, silly putty and the nerd's rope. Yeah. <laughs> it's, clear, it's clearly working so well. Uh, everyone's needs are clearly met. We've yeah. Got, we've got roller coasters everywhere. It's fantastic. E-scooters, you know. <laughs> Everyone's having a ball over here because of the free market. Right. But that's, you know, that's really, I think that's one of the major long-term aspects of losing this world is the total hegemony of neoliberalism as an ideology now. That most, I, I would say most Americans don't know what neoliberalism is. Of course, yeah. Or have any idea of what that ideology yeah, is. Yeah, but, but, you know, it's like, uh, it's a but cliche. It's what, it's what took over. <laughs> well, it's a cliche, but it's like, a, I don't even know where this is written, but this is like a Karl Marx quote about ideology where he summarizes it as, they don't know that they're doing it, but they're doing it. And that's, you know, it's just the that's generalized true. common sense. It, it, yeah, neoliberalism in a nutshell could be described as going to TJ Maxx and then <laughs> going to a cheesecake factory and then sleeping at a Holiday Inn. Like, that's what it is. It's You love that. You're just like, yes, this is heaven to me. Well, but they, there's no other option. You know, you well, can't, no one can exist in a vacuum. And, 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 and the co- American culture is uh, so strange to me because it's kind of a cultureless, like, vacuum no two people are the same no two cities are the same but yet they're all so similar mm-hmm. like you could go like I, I just went to i told you i went to stamford connecticut um uh my friend uh that i was driving up with schmitty he goes what do you think it'll look like and i said everywhere else it's gonna look like cherry hill exactly Jersey. exactly look like exactly town pennsylvania yeah these places all look like the same then we get to uh to uh, Connecticut, and it just looks like um, a business park that f- people feel like they had to move into. Yes, because <laughs> they have no. Yeah, and it was like depressing. It was. Yeah. A, it's a very depressing place. Uh, and that I think that's that's particularly bad in the United States, or maybe maybe it's North America. Mm-hmm. But actually, uh, I mentioned that um, uh, a, a good friend of mine, an older East German man, um, he uh, he has told me many times about how in East Germany. Obviously, you could not travel freely. That's mm-hmm. you know that's that's just true, and that was one of the major reasons people were dissatisfied. But how in a more in a more closed and settled society, there were still 
very distinct regional differences. And he said, every weekend, me and my friends would just pile in our little Trabant, the little East German car that everyone had, mm -hmm. and we would just drive out to some other part of the country. Um, also because German, East German propaganda and East German public media tended to focus on East Berlin and a few other cities where things looked particularly good and people okay. were doing particularly well. Um, so people didn't really know that much about the hinterland of East Germany and about different provinces. And so he said, you know, we would just go out to a province. People had a different dialect. The food was different. And it was almost like a little mini country. This is and exactly all of that it. is gone now. Uh, oh, it doesn't exist anymore? Well, because the collapse... It's been gobbled up by Bertucci's. Well, and, and just he, because <laughs> massive, massive... Uh, uh, migration since the collapse of the wall. I mean, I, so I'm from, you know, I'm from the Midwest. Most of my family is from Detroit. Um, and I think you can look at what happened in East Germany. It's kind of like a national version of what happened in Detroit, only in a much shorter span of time. So mm -hmm. all of the industry collapses. Um, you have unemployment of 50% for the first five years after reunification. And millions of people, especially young people, especially women, and especially educated people, leave. So There's a lot of parallels between um, uh, like European cities like outside of London mm -hmm. and uh, outside of Berlin. Like all these places yeah. that are not the main city, but the, the, the second and third, fifth, yeah. seventh, eighth, fifteenth cities. Those cities are very similar to like Pittsburgh. Yes. Uh, and Detroit, where right. the manufacturing left and went overseas and right. left um, a vacuum, uh, and now everyone's doing internet marketing. Exactly. Only in, East, <laughs> only in East Germany, and I mean, East Germany in many ways, so if you compare East Germany to the other formerly socialist countries, the worst, uh, in, uh, the, the speed and the volume of economic contraction was much larger than in, not much larger, but larger at least in relative terms than Poland or Czech Republic or any of those places. But they were the only country that was integrated into a Western European welfare state. So mm -hmm. um, there was not nearly as much, uh, or let's put it this way, people didn't die of starvation on the yes. street like happened in the Soviet Union. Um, but a process that maybe took decades in the Rust Belt in the United States or in the industrial heartlands of, uh, of the UK happened in East Germany in a period of six months. And so yeah, you have a complete destruction of an entire life world um, and a major, it really eradicated a lot of East German culture, mm -hmm. um, both because of people leaving and also because of the feeling that everything from the West is better. And some things were better, like, you know, a lot of the food was better, a lot Traveling, of the... Yeah, and they the, had more shit. And the consumer goods were better. Yeah. But so, very quickly, uh, all East German consumer goods, all East German, or almost all East German restaurants, all these kinds of things are done away with to bring in the new from the West. To wash away the communism. Yes, but, yeah, <laughs> for lack of a better way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but this then leads to kind of a crisis of identity. You don't have your old job. Your whole world is gone. And also everything from your country that you like, you got rid of too because you were so excited about the new from the West. I'd imagine there was a ton of resentment. Uh, well, there is at, now. At, yeah, so that's... In the, so in the beginning, the first couple of years, uh, or the, I would say the first year... Things were still very um, open, and there was a, you know, when it was, it was a huge, I mean, you have to, it's, I think it's hard to imagine this. friends but, and stuff that they hadn't seen in years across borders. And, and yes, family. and they had overthrown a country 
or a government at least, that had built the wall around them and that they thought would exist for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. And then in the matter of a few months, of six months or whatever... Because of some guy in a in on a public access TV. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I've watched that clip where he accidentally tears down the Berlin yeah, Wall. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> but this is all pressure from a mass movement. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I translated an article for Jacobin, um, actually by my the friend, the guy who told me about driving around East Germany as a youngster and how cool it was about this demonstration on November 4th where you have upwards of a million people calling for reform of the country. So there was, a, there was an initial real feeling of euphoria, like, holy crap, we did this. Mm-hmm. Our demands, our movement. Then follows a total economic collapse and a feeling of abandonment and desolation that I would say is basically the story until today. That there are some parts of East Germany that are doing very well, Leipzig, a couple of the cities. Most of it uh, is is very much a Rust Belt kind of situation. So, so that's what I want to talk about. We're we're coming close to the end. We got like 15 more minutes. Um, so unification happens around 1990, 1989. Mm-hmm. Uh, East Germany and West Germany become Germany that we know now. That's like how many? Years? It's 30 years ago. Right. So Germany's been Germany for about 30 years, and like what happens? Mm-hmm. It just it just be these were two places. Egon Krenz was the leader. How does life fundamentally change after mm-hmm. unification? Like, I that is something that is so foreign to me as an American. Uh, and one of the things that led me on this idea was uh, that Jamil Lemieux had said that by two thousand one hundred, she thinks America will split. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's not that's not unreasonable. Uh, if you look at history, look at look at Germany, mm-hmm, and that's mm-hmm. how I landed on you. Uh, yeah. So, like, what happens like in the coming days, in the coming years after 1990, when East Germany just no longer exists, mm-hmm, the people mm-hmm. in power no longer have power? Uh, what what happens in those coming times? Well, so there's there's kind of an argument among historians uh, whether you call it a reunification or an annexation. Um, because re- it, was, it was a reunification in the sense that... It implies that there was a Germany before. Well, well, but also in terms of legal... So legally speaking, there's a clause in the West German Constitution, which is technically not a constitution, because the idea, um, in theory, was always, this is a provisional document until Germany is reunified. And there was a clause, it's called the Basic Law, and still mm-hmm. the, it's still the valid constitution in Germany today. There's a clause that said... When reunification happens, there will be some kind of like democratic process through which a new constitution will be written. Um, but instead, what was done, and there are various reasons for this that I don't want to get into, technically speaking, legally speaking, there was not a reunification, but rather the territory of East Germany was annexed by West Germany. And so the West German social system was kind of implanted onto the East. Mm-hmm. Um, and this had many benefits, such as you know, the welfare state, so especially for old people, um, they actually, like, elderly East Germans had the smoothest transition, and then they just, you know, they got a, suddenly they got a West German pension, which was much bigger and nicer than an East German pension. Um, But it also meant that all of the institutions were implanted, or were, what's the word, superimposed onto East Germany. And this often meant bringing West German technical uh, expertise and West German bureaucrats into the East. So, um whether it's universities, whether it's major research institutions, whether it's courts, uh, even today, the majority of people in these leading positions 
all West Germans who've moved to the East. Mm-hmm. Um, so you basically had an extension of the West German state uh, and, and civil life, civil society, into East Germany. And so until today, um, the... There's probably just rich West Germans coming into East Germany and buying yeah, up all well, the land. Probably. Yeah, or I mean, yeah, this is probably politically incorrect, but like, you know, the, the term carpetbagger from like the post-Civil War area. Um, yeah. Obviously, that was a right-wing word denouncing in many ways people coming from the North to help freed slaves. So it's not really a good uh, allegory or whatever. Yeah. But, um, but, but even me- it, comparable to like... Uh, moving to Palestine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, moving, you're moving to the Gaza Strip. Uh, yeah, a lot of West... Right, a lot of West Florida. Germans... Yeah, a lot of West... <laughs> thank you. <laughs> That's what people are doing. I, I'm not joking. <laughs> so a lot of West Germans moved to the East and were able to advance up the career their career ladders much faster, whereas for many East Germans, especially if you were an East German... Uh, if you were born in the 40s, 50s, or 60s and you had an established place in East German society, in many ways your life was over. Um, uh, you had a c- huge collapse of birth rates. So in in uh, in the period of two or three years, uh, the average, like the number of like you know average children per woman, is more than cut in half. Uh, divorce and, rates go. Uh, and this is 1990. Like yeah, now. this is like 91, 92, 93. So- and, and I feel like this is the most important thing about a story like uh, the story of East Germany, which talk, which in, in, is technically a story about the Cold War and geopolitics and economic systems. Um, the story never ends. Right. And uh, it started with like uh, Bismarck uh, uniting a bunch of different communities, and then it was very liberal in the 20s, everyone's doing cocaine, and then the Nazis were essentially a rebellion against all the cocaine. Mm-hmm. And, then after, and the communists. Yeah, and then, and then after the fact, uh, then it, there's this ridiculous split, because that was a, the, the politics of like the 1900s were so like stupid in these ideas where like, let's just cut things in half. Like Hong Kong, they were, it's just like the easiest, like it's such like a simple minded uh, way to handle things. Like I couldn't, I can't believe that that's how they did it. It doesn't, I, I bet it happens now still too, but I, it just seems like that was the best, like the best mm. plan was just mm-hmm. to just cut it in half. I, I, we can't just, Oh, what about the capital? Cut it in half again. But it's over there. No, just cut it in half. Trust me, we'll just do one team's blue, one team's red, and they'll fight forever. Yeah. Well, it's just a, it's the it's the it's the the physical expression of conflicts between rival power groups, mm-hmm. you know? And this is I think I think and it these still goes days on today. I it's, think these days it's a bit more subtle. Uh, I think Iran is subtle. You think <laughs> Syria is subtle, sir? <laughs> Excuse me. Well, in this in the in the sense that you no longer have you know, even though China is rising and the United States is declining on the world stage, there is still not that kind of bipolar world order. Uh, nor do we have competing imperialist powers. The I just way think we it has to be softer because we all have phones now. <laughs> there, no, seriously, there's no. You have never seen an American film where a Russian person has been portrayed kindly. Yeah, so of course it has course. never existed. Of course, yeah, there, yeah. there's no my pal Vlad on TNT. It's always like uh, they're they're spies or yes. they're rapists right. or they're the angry guy at the store. Yeah, yeah, of course it's Th- a, it's softer. It's definitely softer. It's a bit less blatant. Yeah, because it has to be, but. It, I wouldn't, but the one America news 
and Fox News, yeah. there's nothing subtle. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It, 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 it feels more subtle because there's literally not literally a wall around Berlin. Well, I think the difference <laughs> now is that... There's no Soviet Union? Well, and because the Democrats can't just accept the fact that they lost to Donald Trump because they had a crappy candidate. They've had to like create this entire fantasy about oh like God. KGB interference I, in the I, election. I, I hate, so I now you that. have the liberals promoting all this I ridiculous crap. I hate DNC. But it's, it's, I think... Um, it's it's a different it is a different geopolitical order but what what i think you can take from what the end of east germany is that the the physical division is gone and the the political system that existed on that territory for 40 years is gone mm-hmm. and most of the especially in east germany more so than the other former socialist states because of the amount of west german money that financed infrastructure and uh, you know they tore down a lot of the old socialist housing blocks so there are less physical uh, manifestations of that of that that state than there might be in in poland or in, or in bulgaria or somewhere like that but the deep social fractures um, that emerged particularly, one, out of the division in the 1940s, and then secondly, the reunification in the 90s. They're, in, they're invisible on a physical level. Uh, you can't see them. You can't look at a German person and know whether they're from the east or the west, mm-hmm. maybe based on their clothes, if you really kind of know. You yeah, if you knew. like I find that uh, older East German women tend to dye their hair purple. Very few West German women do that. But, you know, other than these the, kinds these of things. These are the things you know. <laughs> right, but the, other than these things, you can't see the division, but they go deep to the heart of the society and... Uh, really fundamentally shape the way people who grow up in that place feel about themselves, feel mm-hmm. about the region. And even if East Germany as a physical entity doesn't exist, um, and many Germans, many Easterners have moved to the West and vice versa, Westerners mm-hmm. to the East, there is sort of a, a feeling um, of East Germany and being East German that uh, cannot really be it's difficult to grasp it in words. There's Similar to like Spain, where like there's the Catalonia. And, sure. Which is yeah. something that also, where the hell did that come from? Where was that in my education? <laughs> they were like, uh, one day, Spain's considering splitting up. And I was like, into, into what? Catalonia. I was like, what the hell's that word? What? <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I've, never, I've never heard that word in my life. What is, and all of a sudden it's all over the news and then it disappeared like that. Yeah. Because yeah. who cares? It's Spain. Did you see the Kardashians? Um, yeah, but that's American, the American oh, trust, news cycle. Trust, I'm not going to. I mean. I, if, if I went on, there's other episodes where I talk about Americans. And, and I've, I'm pretty sure I've, I've said enough bad things about America <laughs> in this episode. And I didn't even try. I tried not to. Um, <laughs> well, oh, last question, because we've got to wrap up. Um, specifically, Egon Krenz related. So you sat across from a former dictator. Yeah. Who lost all the power. Yeah. Yep, in his little dacha on the coast. So, how? What is it like to meet someone who once had like the power to do not anything he wanted, but almost anything he wanted? Uh, at one point in time, falls from grace, goes to prison, and then he's in front of you. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I think that's so fascinating because um, I wish I could meet one of our war criminals like George Bush <laughs> or something, um, but I don't get to, and they would never let me. Um, because of that sentence I just said, um, but you, we, you, I don't get you don't get that opportunity yeah. because because the United States is still a country, right? And it's still in power, right? But right. you interviewed a dictator who lost power and could speak about the shit he did because mm-hmm. he already served his time too. Talk to me about because 
much like East Germany is lost to time in a sense, so is that power that East Germany had and that yeah. power that Egon Krenz had. So can I just, just give me anything about what it's sure, like to sit yeah. in front of a former dictator? Well, I think it was surreal. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was a very, it was a very, I mean, it's a day I'll never forget, that's for sure. Um, I think the most, like if you, and this is true of all of the East German leading functionaries, although they had relative privilege compared to the rest of their society, None of them were ever wealthy, and what, what was considered a very privileged position was basically a middle-class standard of living, a Western middle-class standard of living. So he never had that much money, right? He did not, un unlike some of the other dictators in yeah. Eastern Europe. Yeah, what's the point of being a poor dictator? <laughs> yeah, well, because they, I think Communism. He, they, yeah, I think they, you know, for all, for everything they did wrong, I think he really believed in it. And it's, mm -hmm. you know, at this point, he's an 80-year-old man. He's not... Even if he privately has his doubts, he's not going to, you know, he's not going to turn around. It's not the time to be like, eh, exactly, no more. Exactly. You're dug in deep. Right. But so he, you know, he has a very modest little house um, on the Baltic coast. Um, and uh, <laughs> so he has a very modest house on the Baltic coast. And um, he is a very friendly person, which is very disarming because you go in thinking like, okay, this guy's responsible for repression. And he was responsible for all these things. But as a human being, he was very charming. He was very gracious. Isn't that uh, the worst? It was, yeah, I mean, it was like talking to I met a guy you. from InfoWars the other day. Yeah. He was, he was so nice <laughs> and he was so... It was so obvious that he believed nothing he said. It was yeah, so, so irritating. Yeah. Well, I think with Egon Krenz, he really did believe everything he said. And at this point, you know, his 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 wife recently passed away. He himself is in his mid-80s. He doesn't have that much longer to live. And you can t very much tell that his, for, for as long as he's around, his goal is to, even though he admits, you know, I was very proud that we at least got him to admit that the censorship of music and culture was a mistake. <laughs> um <laughs> Oh. So he occasionally will admit that this decision was wrong and that decision was wrong, but he is very much occupied with defending his legacy and defending uh, the project. And that made it very difficult because he wasn't very that open. He clearly has kind of a script that he's reading from mm -hmm. his head. Politics. Um, yeah, like m much of what he said in the interview, if you read his latest book, you will notice that he was essentially just reading his book to us. But he mm -hmm. was doing it, you know, from memory. Well, if you write a book, you <laughs> yeah, internalize yeah. it all. But yeah, it was, it was surreal. Um, it was uh, a very unique experience that I'm very thankful that I got. And, I, you know, I got a lot of flack, uh, more from Germans than from than from Americans or other non-Germans. I got a lot of flack from Germans, like, why would you talk to this monster? Blah 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 oh, blah blah. Like but Steve I, Bannon conversation. Yes, but I think I think as a as a historian and as a journalist, uh, getting these kinds of stories and getting these kinds of perspectives while these people are still alive is a very valuable it's thing BS. to do. And I, I don't regret it at all. I think it was great. Um, it was. Day, like I said, a day I'll never forget. But yeah, it was, it was just surreal, especially because the night before, I spent several hours watching interviews and videos with him from when he was still in power. And to compare those two men, this man who still was convinced that the socialist world would continue to exist and that they had to change a couple things, but that they were still doing fine, and then to see him as an old man with hardly anything um, was... Uh, yeah, for me, it really underlined again how open and fluid history is and how quickly things can change mm -hmm. and how, um, although I don't think that the United States is going to collapse anytime soon, one should have no certainties about um, what could happen tomorrow or the day after.
Okay, well, thank you so much for coming on my humble little show and meeting me here in New York. I feel the need to mention that we're in New York because I'm never in New York. Um, <laughs> but thank you for coming on my show. Uh, yeah, thanks a lot. Before we sign off, do you have anything to say to the people of the year 2100? Well, uh, as someone who still, despite everything, believes in the dream of a society based on cooperation, um, I really hope that the people of the year 2100 have found a more equitable and more fair uh, political and economic system to live in than the one that we have today in 2020. Thank you so much for listening to a podcast episode about Egon Krenz, East Germany, and the Berlin Wall. I know that that's a strange topic to originally dive into, especially with someone like me who's not an expert. But the thing is, I try for some episodes to pick topics that I'm not an expert on so that the listener can learn along with me. And I sincerely hope that you learn some stuff about Germany, uh, neocolonialism, how the world works in general on the global stage and how economic systems affect your life. Whatever you want to take away from this. Maybe you just learned who Egon Krenz was. Maybe you learned that the Berlin Wall was not a wall, but rather a circle encompassing half of a city. I don't know. But regardless, thank you so much for giving this episode a chance. Uh, please like and subscribe or whatever you fucking need to do. Um, thank you to Loren Balhorn as well as uh, Rory Lynch. Rory Lynch is the only reason I was able to get the uh, studio in uh, uh, Manhattan on top of the late show uh, where Stephen Colbert works. That was an amazing experience. If you could hear in the background during the interview, if you listen closely, you can hear pianos because we were actually recording in a Broadway rehearsal space. There's a huge grand piano in the middle of the room that we were recording in and we were absolutely not supposed to be there doing what I was doing, but... I don't follow rules and they don't like that. <laughs> Thank you and happy 2000. 100. Yeah, yeah. This prayer's called the one and only, nigga. Get familiar. Looking in the future, I don't know how niggas ain't worried. It's sunny in December, in July we having flurries. I don't need a pastor, that nigga just a clerk inside a clergy. I'm at peace, so can a nigga in this world disturb me? I could never stress about a shorty if she curved me. She lucky that I even thought she worthy. You headed to your shorty house, look at the roof, you'll see she hung my jersey. More money means more problems be emerging. Uh. In a couple years, I'm in a Lamborghini merging Drinking on some wine and I cannot pronounce a word in Police killing niggas before they even get a word in If you lucky, you won't die before they search it uh, I'll be real until I'm fucking laying where the dirt is I'm a fucking product of what always being hurt is It took a while, but I think I done finally found my purpose This the fifth sequel to the purges uh, 
I done lost my love for living life, but I just smoke and get it back. I wanna hit this bitch again, but I know if I do, she'll get attached. I done lost my love for living life, but I just smoke and get it back. I wanna hit this bitch again, but I know if I do, she'll get attached. That's a fact. Easy money.